a survey in perhaps any major city in the United States even, or the world, what kind of answers would you get? You might get answers like this. Faith is taking the first step when you can't see the whole staircase. Faith is uh, believing when it is beyond the power of reason to believe. Faith is overcoming negative emotions and finding equilibrium. Or, my favorite, faith is living with uncertainty, feeling your way through life, letting your heart guide you like a lantern in the dark. None of these are particularly satisfying answers to the question, what is faith? And yet, I think they convey fairly popular sentiments about faith. Faith is a very spiritual concept. It's a concept that's central to uh, really any religious system. It's certainly central to the Christian life and community. My guess is that most of you in here could give at least a basic definition and explanation of what faith is, probably better than anything that I just read. Maybe some of you even have Hebrews 11.1 memorized. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Maybe you know Hebrews 11.6 that says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Maybe you know question 91 in the Baptist Catechism that answers the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. These are better answers. Now I'll be the first, or at least one of the first, to tell you that being able to give a thorough, precise, and accurate definition of faith is very important. But even if you can recite all of Hebrews 11, and you can call to mind various definitions that have been offered by theologians over the course of church history, does that mean that you really know what faith is? Or better yet, does that mean that you really have faith? How many of us can not only define faith in a very technical sense, an accurate, true sense, but can define it it practically and experientially? Well, that, I hope, is what the prophet Isaiah will help us to do this morning. Our text is Isaiah 55, 1-3. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat backs in front of you, you can find that on page 615. I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Soul's Market. And the key words for our worshipers in training are come, buy, and live. Before we read the passage, let's very briefly consider its place in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying in the midst of great political and spiritual turmoil. His message is predicated upon the sin and rebellion of God's people ever since they were delivered by God out of the land of Egypt. 
The book, therefore, is largely concerned with past, present, and future judgment coming upon the people of God in Isaiah's day. Yet there are also very significant calls to faith in the book. The message of Isaiah to his people can be summed up like this. First, he says, you are in a dreadful state of sin and rebellion against God. Then he says, judgment is coming because of your sustained revolt. And then he says, repent of your sins and put your faith in the Lord while you still can. And that's pretty much it. That's the message over and over again. And we see in the first 39 chapters of the book, uh, the theme is mostly judgment. But then there's a transition in chapter 40 where the, uh, to a theme of promise, restoration, and hope. Chapters 52 through 55 in the latter half of the book are perhaps uh, one of the Old Testament's clearest proclamations of the gospel. The line of reasoning in these chapters goes like this. In chapters 52 and 53, God's servant suffers for the sins of his people so that many may be counted righteous in him. In Isaiah 54, God's people are called to rejoice in the growth of God's church through the eternal covenant of peace, which is established between the Lord and His people as a result of the sufferings of His servant. And then in Isaiah 55, everyone who will is invited to come and partake of this feast of love that God offers. This is the message of Isaiah 55, 1-3. If you want a one-sentence takeaway from the sermon, one big thought to hold in your mind as we go through the text, and when we're done, I'll give it to you now. In light of what God has done in the person and work of His suffering servant, He invites us to come to Him and be restored and forgiven to receive the satisfaction that our souls crave. In light of what God has done in the person and work of His suffering servant, come to Him and be restored, forgiven. Receive the satisfaction that your soul craves. I invite you now to follow along as I read these three verses from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Well, as we consider these three verses, then there are uh, three exhortations that I want you to notice. Now, we won't address these in the exact order in which they come to us in the text, but the outline should be fairly easy enough to follow, given that there are only three verses. First, we will consider verse 2, where God entreats His people to stop wasting their lives in pursuit of things that don't ultimately satisfy Second, up in verse 1, 
We will hear God's invitation to come, buy, and eat from God's store. And third, we will close by looking at verse 3 and God's command to listen that we may start living. So again, more briefly, the outline as follows is this. We will consider the folly of idolatry, the bounty of God's store, and the life that He offers. So first, we are invited in verse 2 by way of a rhetorical question to see the folly of idolatry and to quit our pursuit of infinite joy in the finite world. Ultimately, this is a warning against our attempt to procure the fullness of life that cannot be obtained by the efforts of sinful men. The Lord, through Isaiah, asks, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? These two things, what he calls not bread and that which doesn't satisfy, they're really the same thing. That is, anything that's not of eternal value. They are idols of the heart. One commentator put it this way, he says, this question refers to the benighted heathen lavishing toil and wealth in order to feed on ashes. One of my favorite things to do, especially as of late, but more especially when it's not that hot outside, is to cook on the grill. I love the whole process. The charcoal, the smell, the smoke, the flames. Most importantly, the food. It, it is an, a tremendously rewarding experience to me. I, I assume that at least some of you feel the same way. And if you don't like to grill, I guess as many of you like to eat what comes off the grill. But imagine instead of eating the brats, burgers, and wings that you spent the last hour or so grilling to perfection, imagine you just dump the used-up charcoal on a plate and serve that instead. How would that go over? That's what the Lord is rebuking His people for here in this passage. They are feeding on ashes. They are passing up some of the most tender and delicious morsels around to eat burnt wood. This is the stuff of Ecclesiastes. The preacher calls it vanity of vanities. The Lord calls us here in Isaiah to stop chasing after the things of this world which do not and cannot satisfy Is this question aimed at us? Is this question one you should consider? Here are some diagnostic tests to run in order to see if we are feeding on ashes. Let's ask ourselves questions like these. What generally consumes your thoughts? Both your conscious thoughts, the, one you intend, the ones you intend to think, and the ones you maybe find yourself thinking by default? Are your thoughts primarily concerned with yourself and your stuff and your life? Are you tirelessly working each and every day so that you might build a bigger kingdom and better name for yourself? Are you bent on making more money, acquiring more stuff, making more friends, getting more Instagram followers, climbing the corporate ladder, 
having more kids, having better kids, being in better shape, no matter the cost. There's nothing necessarily wrong with working hard to earn more money. There's nothing inherently wrong in seeking to live a healthier lifestyle. There's nothing explicitly sinful in in seeking to better yourself in in any of these ways or, or others. Largely, these can be good things. The problem comes when our lives are spent in pursuit of these things. These things that are really only temporary. But are you doing these things because you believe that in doing them, it will make you truly happy? If so, that is a problem. You are laboring for that which isn't bread. You are laboring for that which doesn't satisfy. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Are you seeking to find your ultimate hope and satisfaction and happiness in something or someone that in the end is going to be given to someone else? Before you die or at least when you die. People can make great husbands, wives, children, and friends, but they make terrible gods. Money, clothes, food, and homes make great tools for fruitful and productive living, but they also make terrible gods. Well, what is the takeaway then? How do we live in a world full to the brim of great things that God has given us to enjoy, at least in part, And yet, we know that the things of earth simply cannot carry us through eternity. Look what Isaiah says in the second part of verse 2. After rebuking the people for spending their money on laboring, spending their money on and laboring for that which isn't food and that which doesn't satisfy, he makes an exquisite offer. He says, Listen diligently, eat what is good, and delight yourself. In rich food. Far too often, Christianity is set forth primarily in terms of all that one must give up. Now, surely there are immense sacrifices that are demanded of the follower of Christ. Jesus says that we must hate our own lives, take up our crosses, and die daily to ourselves if we are going to be his disciples. But that's only half the equation. The other half is that no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. You see, while God is calling us to give up our pursuit for infinite joy and pleasure in the finite things of the world, He is calling us, on the other hand, to pursue infinite satisfaction in that which is infinite. C.S. Lewis famously said, if I find in myself a desire that Nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Every single one of us in this room has a hunger and a thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. Therefore, we must seek relief in that which is not of this world. Which leads us to our second point in terms of our Main headings. Here we will consider the bounty of God's store in verse 1. Here we have an invitation to go shopping. And we need to consider three things about this invitation. 
First, what does it mean to go shopping? Second, who is it that may go shopping? And third, how is it that we may go shopping? First, what is this shopping we speak of? This shopping, of course, is not at the farmer's market at Forsyth on Saturday mornings, or the outlets in Pooler, or even on Amazon. Rather, the shopping is to be done in the marketplace for the soul. The Lord entreats us to come to Him, to His store, as it were, and buy and eat. What is it that is communicated in this language? It is the exercise of faith. Look, in verse 1, all the language, coming, buying, eating, drinking, they're all metaphors for faith. We asked the question at the beginning of the sermon, what is it to believe or to have faith? Well, Isaiah tells us here that it's like eating. It's like drinking. To be clear, this is an invitation to come to Jesus. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. He says in uh, verses 51 and 58 of that chapter that anyone who eats this bread which is Christ, he says, that one will live forever. In John 6.40, he connects this coming to him uh, to eat and drink with faith. In verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Spiritually speaking, then, we eat the body of Jesus Christ broken for us when we believe in Him. We drink His blood shed for us when we believe in Him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave Himself as a perfect substitute and sacrifice for sinners. He lived a sinless life before God and man, and yet He died on a cross and bore the wrath of God so that sinners like you and like me might be reconciled to God through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We receive Christ as we receive bread and water by eating and drinking. So that's the what of it. Second, who may come and partake of this divine feast? In short, any who will come. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? This invitation is for you. Listen again to the words in verse 1, as I, and I'll, I'm going to read them again, and I want you to listen for this universal call, any and all who will come. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. What marvelous words. Come, buy, and eat. The condition is, if you are thirsty, come, and it will be quenched. But surely he doesn't mean, really, that just anyone who thirsts can come. Isn't there a cover charge, at least? Surely only those who have something to offer in exchange for this water, for this bread, this wine, this milk, surely only they can come. Again, he says, he who has no money, come. He, 
may come without money and without price. Believe it or not, all of this is free to anyone who will have it. In fact, it can only be received by those who recognize their own neediness and utter inability to give anything in exchange for these goods. If you come to the Lord with cash in hand, ready to buy these gifts from Him, you will most certainly be turned away. Yet it isn't as though the thought of purchase is thrown away altogether. There is a purchase and a price, but it is not ours to pay. It all has been bought and paid for by our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. On your part, you must, aware of your utter poverty and wretchedness, with nothing but the empty hand of faith, you must come to a transaction already completed for you. Come, then, any and all who will, come to Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, how do we engage in these spiritual transactions of the soul? So, we've considered what it is to go shopping, to come to Christ by faith. Who may come, any and all who will. And thirdly, how do we come? It's easy to say, go to Jesus Christ. Buy, eat, and drink. But how do you do that? Where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. It is the Word of God then, working in conjunction with the Spirit, where faith is born, where we are made able to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the ordinary means by which we may expect to engage in this spiritual commerce. We hear some Some other questions then to consider to see how we value this marketplace for our souls. Do we go frequently? How often do you read your Bible? Do you read it by yourself? Do you read it with your family? Do you read other books that will help you better understand the Bible or listen to sermons? How often do you pray both by yourself and with your family? How do you treat the Lord's Day? Are you here with your family for corporate worship every Sunday unless truly hindered by divine providence? How often do you make it to Sunday school? When you're here, are you engaged? Are you singing and praying and listening? Or are we watching the clock because we want to get home to eat? Or because something comes on TV that we need to see at 12.30? How do you spend the rest of the day after worship? Are you resting in the finished work of Christ for your soul or rushing to and fro trying to get caught up on all of your chores? Are you a part of one of the small groups of this church or one of the Bible studies that meet either weekly or bi-weekly or various times throughout the month? Listen, nobody is perfect. I'm preaching first and foremost to myself in these matters. These these aren't things that we must do in order to be a Christian. 
These aren't the prerequisites for being reconciled to God. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us through faith is what grants us peace with God. But these things, things like these, this is what's going to feed our soul and will give us greater experiences of our communion with God. These are the places, as it were, where God has promised to meet us consistently to establish, confirm, and grow our faith. This is how we go shopping, as it were. Well, in terms of our major headings then, we come to verse 3 in our third heading, and we will consider our final point, the life that God offers. We find this uh, again in verse 3. And, and here we see the result of this commerce of the soul. And the result is eternal life with God. He says, Incline your ear to me. Come to me. So that your soul may live. These commands to incline the ear, to come, to hear, are really just reiterations of the commands given so far. Metaphors for faith. Here He gives the purpose for which we should come, buy, eat, drink, and listen. In other words, He tells us why we should believe upon the Lord. It's so that we may live. The implication of this statement is that apart from the life-giving food and drink that is Jesus Christ, we are dead. Jesus makes this clear in John 15. He says that apart from Him, we can do nothing. There in John 15, He uses the metaphor of a vine and its branches. He says that we, like branches attached to a vine, derive our life from being united to Christ. And so we see that by our union to Jesus Christ through faith, we are connected with this vine. And we share in the same life that He has. Well, what are the characteristics of this life? It is a life founded upon and distinguished by the covenant love of God. It is a life built upon an everlasting covenant that God makes with us. In Psalm 89, in various places, the Lord declares His his love, His covenant, steadfast love for David. And the mention of a covenant with David's name certainly draws our attention back to the covenant made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God established this covenant with David, promising him an heir to always rule from his throne. And this promise works to bring about the fulfillment of the promise made way back in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And here in Isaiah 55, God promises to bring the one who intently listens to His Word and believes into the covenanted blessings. Namely, the promises to David of world rule and an enduring throne. And ultimately, this is fulfilled under the new covenant where Christ, the second Adam, the son of David, wins all the rights to God's sure, faithful love to bestow upon His people forever 
Isaiah says, any who come near and truly listen may enjoy this blessing. For some reason, I, I rewatched the movie Titanic this past week. And at the end of the movie, uh, if you haven't seen it, you're way behind the curve, so this is a spoiler alert. But when, the, when everyone's racing to the back of the ship so that they can stay on it as long as possible before the ship sinks, it does sink, there's a priest reciting tw- uh, Revelation 21, verses uh, 3 and 4. And he's, he's reciting it to a group of frightened passengers. And, and when I heard the passage being quoted, I, I was reminded of, of this blessing for which we await. Uh, and so the text goes like this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Why am I bringing this up? Well, this verse expresses the great promise of the Scripture and the hope of the Christian. This life with God, promised in Isaiah 55, is that God will reverse the effects of the curse and the curse of sin forever. He will be our God and we will be His people. And death will be no more. We quoted John 6, 51 and 58 earlier where Jesus says that anyone who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus says in John 4 to the woman at the well that He has living water. And that water to whomever He gives it will will become in Him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What's so bad about feeding on ashes? Ashes don't cause us to live forever. I think that's why that moment in the movie struck a chord with me. What is faith? What does it accomplish? Faith is the means of conquering death. Ashes can't do that. But the living bread most certainly can. You see, understanding faith is so important because we all have to die. Why must we eat the bread that comes down from heaven? Because without it, we will die. Why must we drink the water that Christ provides? Because without it, we will die. Why must we draw near and listen to God? Because without His Word, we will die. It is by faith and faith alone that we overcome the world and that we can, we can stare death in the face. What comfort do we have in the face of death? Without faith, none. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way, What is my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. 
He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Well, all of this then, coming, eating, and drinking, is about faith. It's the exercise of saving faith. And I want to end now with a question and a few thoughts that flow from it. The question is this. Why should you come to Jesus Christ this morning? You should come because you are needy. You should come because apart from Him, you can do nothing. You should come because apart from Him, you have nothing. But in Him, you have everything you could ever need. Well, let me say a word about that to two groups of people that I assume are in here this morning, and then we will be done. First, if you are a believer, come Eat and drink. Your Savior continually invites you to come and drink yourself full of His love. It shall never run dry. And as believers, we can sometimes experience very close communion with God and very distant communion with God. And I'm speaking to both of us now. Whether you're walking in close communion with Him or you haven't said a prayer in weeks, or longer. This invitation is for you, believer. Come. Wherever you are on your pilgrimage to the celestial city, you are never too far along to need this bread. This water, this milk, this wine. But neither are you ever too fallen behind to have access to them either. Look to your Savior who has loved you and gave Himself for you. He has given Himself for you, believer. God has made an everlasting covenant with you. As you have found Him to satisfy your soul before, He continually offers Himself to you as a fountain of living water. So drink up. Second, if you're in here and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I commend Him to you right now. You have been traveling your whole life to this very moment. Everything that you have been through, everything you have done has brought you to this day, this place, this hour. You aren't here by accident. Maybe you've heard this message before. Maybe you've heard it every week or day of your life. Maybe you've never heard this message before. But either way, you sit here this morning and you know you don't know Him. Maybe you knew you didn't know Him coming in. Or maybe it just dawned on you a few moments ago. Whatever the case, you know you are hungry and you are thirsty, and you have never tasted of this life of which I speak. And you 
are aching to get the taste of ash out of your mouth. If that's you, I urge you, consider the adequacy of Christ's work and the willingness of His person to save you to the uttermost and come. Don't wait another moment. No one's going to ask you to raise your hand or come walk the aisle and sign a card. You are certainly welcome to come and talk with one of us after the service. We would love to hear from you, but we're not trying to squeeze some public profession of faith out of anyone this morning. But nevertheless, you are faced right now, this very moment, with the decision. Are you going to keep laboring for that which isn't bread and doesn't satisfy? Or will you come with no money and buy from Jesus Christ, finding all that you will ever need in Him? My friends, this is the great hope for our souls. Jesus says anyone who will come to Him will never be cast out. Anyone who comes and eats will never go hungry. Anyone who comes and drinks will never go thirsty. So come, eat, drink, buy, and enjoy. Delight yourself in the worship of the triune God. He is the all-satisfying fountain of goodness. He's all you could ever need, all you could ever dream. In Him, there is no lack. He will never run dry. Are you weak? He is strong. Are you poor? He is rich. Are you cast down? He's able to exalt. Are you dead? He is able to give life. And so I invite us all, one and all, to come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, I confess my own inadequacy to deliver this message. But we trust in the adequacy and the sufficiency of Your Word and Your Spirit. And we ask that You would do the great work in our hearts so necessary now that You would plant this Word within us, causing it to to spring up and bear fruit would You give us the living water that, is, that wells up to eternal life? God, may we know Your love. And may we come. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.